Well, uh, yeah, so one thing's been bugging me about the eclipse this week, actually, and it's simply this, that there are a few guys out there who have been getting totally rich off the work the sun and the moon did earlier this week, and I've actually been mad all week long about it. So, will you join me in prayer? I need to just get my heart right, all right, before we share this morning, and, uh, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for the opportunity to be here this morning. We ask that you will uh, bring your words, Heavenly Father. Um, because that's, that is what we need. No one else's words but yours. And so we lift this morning and this message up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if it is your first time here, my name is Nathan. And uh, Thomas will be back up next week, as he said, starting a new series. But I'm going to wrap up numbers, uh, numbers this week. We've been going through that this summer. And it's, it basically boils down to this, that throughout Scripture, the chapters and the verses, God has numbers all over the place that he wants to touch our lives and our hearts with. And so regardless of the numbers, we, we, um, we know that it has been alive and well in our hearts and in our lives this summer. Well, um, I don't usually start this way, but this morning I need to start this way. I want to tell you about a uh, weakness of mine. Uh, it's been a battle my entire life. I cannot whistle. I can't whistle. Is there anyone else in here who cannot whistle? Oh, I heard a whistle. I'm so happy for you. All right. But give me a show of hands if you cannot whistle. All right. If you cannot. All right. So a few of us are going to band together this morning. Okay. Well, here's a thank you guys. Thank you very much. I'm going to find you after service. All right. Um, But there's this thing that happens in me, this insecurity that rises up whenever um, I hear somebody whistle, somebody talks about whistling, somebody asks me if I can whistle. And it's just this, it's this feeling like I, I'm just, I, I'm not a part of the whistlers, okay? And it's gotten so bad that I can actually walk in somewhere. Um, like, we'll go to a restaurant, we'll sit down, and as we're sitting down, I'll kind of scan around, just kind of people watching. And if I see somebody even glance my direction who's not smiling, I sit there and I think, oh my gosh, they know. <laughs> they know. And I can actually hear the thoughts in their brain. It's like, oh, there's, there's Nathan, that non-whistler. And, and it, or I'll walk in here to church, and I'll have some conversations with groups of you in the foyer. And we have a great time. We connect. We laugh. We talk about life. And then I walk away, and guess what happens in my brain? I think, they're probably whistling right now, all together, without me. And that's really not even the worst part, because there's this dynamic, and you already heard it, when you tell somebody you can't whistle, what do you hear? What you just heard over here. And, and I sit there, and, and people usually say, it's so easy. I go, oh, yeah, I've been trying for 37 years. I'm glad it's so easy for you. So much joy in my heart for you. Or the other thing that happens is people go, oh, it's really simple. Let me teach you as if I haven't been trying for 37 years, okay? And so what happens is they say, well, you just pucker your mouth. And I actually one time had a lady grabbed my mouth and she was trying to rearrange my mouth in the right position to whistle. And they say, just put your tongue behind your two top teeth and just blow. It's like, yeah, I've tried that. And it goes like this. (sighs) Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, it's gotten so bad that I've actually considered some totally, um, I've just daydreamed about what really wouldn't be a realistic solution. I have considered 
like actually getting a, an actual whistle surgically implanted into my vocal box. So that not when I talk, but when I breathe, there's a whistle. It's just every single time. And now, now if I could pull back from that silly insecurity in my own life, um, I think it surfaces some tensions. Some tensions in me that I think are, are common to all of us. I think it surfaces some tensions for us individually and as a church. And I don't just mean West Bowles. I mean the church throughout the ages. Because I think this thing happens, that when somebody walks into church, the equivalent of looking around and going, I can't whistle, can happen and can take place inside of people. And then on top of it, as the church, it's very easy if you've been in church for a long time to think that the solution is just, we just got to teach people how to whistle. And if we could just teach people how to whistle, then they'd be okay. And they'd be all right. And then what happens is people oftentimes consider what is really should be an unacceptable solution to all of us. They don't come back. They don't come back. And I, I bring all this up because of where we sit on the calendar right now. Here we are, teenagers, young adults. You guys don't need another reminder. But a school year has gotten underway. It's a new year that has gotten underway. For some of you in business, a fiscal year has gotten underway. And even if neither of those apply to you, well, here at the church even, a new season, a new year is getting underway. Post-Labor Day, you can see it throughout the nation, but especially in the history of this church. New people come in the doors constantly. And God is faithful to bring new people through the doors. And I think that one of the things we can miss at times is the tension that goes on inside ourselves, inside the people coming in the doors. Because they can start to feel like, look around and feel like, well, I can't whistle. I'm not part of the club. Or we think if we just fix them, they'll be okay. And so this morning, this morning, I want us to just talk a little bit and look at something. And we're going to be in John, a few different chapters of John, if you have your Bibles. But I want us to look at a couple things. Because if we ourselves can resolve the tension going on that we're about to look at and be impacted by that, then we can have an impact together as a church. And so it's something I want to look at. And it actually comes from what we'd probably consider an unlikely place. Because Jesus has this conversation with one of the guys that when we hear this description, when we hear this name of this group of people, it's easy to hit the off switch. It was a Pharisee. It was a Pharisee, and we'll get into that in a minute. But what I want to look at is not just the conversation that Jesus had, but the relationship that Jesus had with this Pharisee. Because you know what it does? It resolves those tensions inside of us, but I think it helps us recognize those tensions in the lives of others and shows us what to do when we recognize those tensions. So, if you have your Bible, we're going to start in John chapter 3. If not, it'll be up on, on the screens here. But take a look at John chapter 3, verse 1. Look at what it says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay, now, the thing you got to know about the Pharisees is they believed that obedience to God could gain favor with God. And not only were they trying to live very obedient lives, but they were trying to get everybody else to live very obedient lives. And as, as you know, if you've walked through Scripture at all, at times the Pharisees weren't so gracious about it. 
But Nicodemus, this man that we're meeting here, is one of the Pharisees. And he's not just any Pharisee. He is the representative that they sent to speak with Jesus. So he is the one who, he's got it all together. He knows the law. He obeys the law. He's the, he's the model of what the Pharisees were trying to live out. Well, look at this. Verse 2. He came to Jesus at night. Now, why do you do anything at night? Why would you do anything at night? Because you want it to be secret, right? We, we discovered this um, years ago. Ryan Long and I decided uh, we picked up some junior hires here from the youth group at, um, after school, and they brought some friends with them, and we decided to go TPing at 3 in the afternoon. And uh, by the way, Ryan's idea, not mine, okay? But um, you don't go TPing in the middle of the daytime. And, and Nicodemus, he's looking at this conversation. He's like, ooh, I don't, I don't know that I can be seen with Jesus yet, so I'm going to go at night. Well, it goes on. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Well, how'd they know that? What he says next. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In other words, the Pharisees looked at Jesus and they said, we know who you are as a being because of your doing. Now that works with Jesus because he's perfect. But this is how the Pharisees looked at everyone else. They would look at, they would look at you and me. Now, would you want to be judged based on your doing? Maybe your highlight reel, but would you want to be judged on everything you do? Probably not. Probably not. And yet, this is what the Pharisees did. And at times, they could get pushy. And, and even more than pushy. And they could really try to force people into obedience. And so Nicodemus says, hey, we Pharisees have been watching you, Jesus. And we know you're from God because of what we physically see you doing. And Jesus, Jesus sees behind all this. And look what he says. Verse 4, or verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you guys don't see it. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Unless he's born again. Now, this was hard for Nicodemus because Nicodemus had built his life on his ability to do and his ability to obey and his ability to behave in a way that he thought pleased God. And what they did is they, they would give value judgments of people and themselves based on what they saw people doing. Now, I want to pull back from the story for a minute. I know we don't like to associate with Pharisees when we read about them in Scripture, but much hasn't changed in a couple thousand years, has it? Because we all still look around and we give value to people based on maybe it's achievements, salaries, cars, neighborhoods, circles of friends, you name it. We're, we're kind of like Nicodemus, aren't we? Well, uh, Nicodemus, of course, hears all this, and, and listen to what he says, verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Verse 5, Jesus answered, gross. That's disgusting, Nicodemus. <laughs> That is disgusting, and it is disgusting. In fact, we're just going to move right past that verse, okay? Well, here's what Jesus actually answered. Verse 5, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, that first birth that gave, gave birth to your physical life, Jesus would say, no, that, that birth fell short. The first birth fell short. And there's more to you. And there's more value to you than that first physical birth and everything you see in the physical realm. Well, to Nicodemus, once again, this is troubling, isn't it? Because he had built his life and the Pharisees had built their lives on their ability to obey. Jesus picks up on this in Nicodemus, verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Couple sentences later, verse 9. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. In other words, so how does this second birth take place? How does it happen? And Jesus, verse 10, doesn't mince words. He says, you are Israel's teacher? In other words, you're the ones with all the influence. You're the ones telling everybody what they should be doing. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? See, for all Nicodemus and the Pharisees thought they knew, there was this really, really big thing that they didn't know. Because they thought they knew that better doing equals a better being. Better doing makes a more valuable being. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He pushes back on that. Now, if I could stop there, I think this point in the conversation really raises a question for all of us. What's that area? What's that area? As you think through the areas and the dimensions of your life, what's that area that maybe you've leaned on a little bit more? Maybe you haven't thrown all your eggs into that basket, but what's that area that we lean on to give us our value? In other words, how do you measure you? Is it the circle of peers that you spend time with? Is it accomplishments? Is it achievements? Is it ability to obey? Is it church attendance? Is it the car that you drive? Is it the house we live in? It could be anything. And I think Jesus would say, you think you know your value based on that. But there's something you don't know. And so to answer Nicodemus' question, a few verses later, Jesus says this. How does it happen? Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert... Now, this is a reference to a story that Nicodemus and the Pharisees knew. It actually takes place in the book of Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 20, what happens is God's people, they're in the desert. Okay? And there are some snakes out in the desert. Surprise. Okay? Snakes in the desert. And people are getting bit by these snakes. And they're, they're dying. And so they cried out for help. And the Lord answered. He said to Moses, he said, Moses, I want you to fashion a snake. A snake, a bronze snake, and put it on a pole. So that whenever, and you've seen that, you've seen it on the side of an ambulance, right? The snake on the pole. And whenever people look at that snake, if they've been bitten, they will live. They will be saved from death. And so Jesus, referencing that story, brings it back to this conversation. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who, instead of looks at him, he makes it simple, believes in him, may have eternal life. 
And Jesus is actually introducing inside Nicodemus and in us really that first tension that we've got to resolve in ourselves. And it's simply this. There is nothing you can do about you. There is nothing you can do about you. No accomplishment, no salary, no car, no circle of friends. It's not going to make you right in the eyes of God. And I think, I think we get this. We get this when it comes to other things outside of ourselves, right? I mean, you think about a caterpillar. Can a caterpillar, by being a better caterpillar, suddenly become the butterfly? You know, if it just has brighter colors, if he just moves a little better, he becomes a butterfly? No. We know that. We get this when it comes to a seed. If you drop a seed in the ground, does that seed automatically sprout? No, it needs a process from outside itself. It needs to be watered. It needs some sunlight. It needs a little more time. It needs some water. It needs some sunlight. It needs a little more time. And then something happens. But then we look at ourselves, and you know what we do? I can't whistle. I can't whistle. And we forget. We forget. We think that if I could, and I, and I think God would say, Nathan, if you could whistle, that wouldn't change who you are in my eyes. But we think that way. We think about ourselves that way, and we think about other people that way. Well, if you read through this conversation, there's really no resolution. I mean, here's Jesus, God himself, who could have made anything make sense at any time, and yet he lets it be. He just goes, I'm, I'm just going to let you be there, Nicodemus. You read through it. There's no light bulb moment. You know what comes next? John chapter 5. You know how it begins? <sighs> Sometime after this. Yay. Get a wait. And then John chapter 6. You know what it says? Sometime after this. And there's no conversation in there in which Nicodemus gets it. And the tension is resolved. Jesus just lets him be there. And he lets him be there. I mean, isn't that the worst? Isn't that just the worst? When, when you've got something in life that you're trying to figure out and you're trying to get your head around and there's just time. And that's it. Well, some time goes on and Jesus, he starts going to people and he's doing for people what they can't do for themselves. And finally you get to chapter 7 and, and as you read through John 4 and 5 and 6, some festivals have come and gone. In fact, this is now a year and a half to two and a half years later after that original conversation that Nicodemus has been walking in the tension and walking in the tension. And you get to John chapter 7 and Jesus is teaching at this festival. And the Pharisees are watching him. And the people are just captured by him. And the Pharisees don't like that because he's now taking the influence they had. And so they finally had enough and they say to the temple guard, arrest him. Arrest him. We need to silence him. And yet, look what happens. Now we're in John chapter 7. And look at verse 45 of John chapter 7. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them. And they're looking at him going, where's Jesus? He's not next to you. And he's not shackled. Why didn't you bring him in? In other words, you had one job, guys. One job, and you didn't do it. And listen to their response, verse 46. Well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. In other words, so we sent you to arrest him, and you sat and listened to him? 
We've had this dynamic at our house before. My wife um, will be ready to take the kids to school. And she'll say, hey, can you run in and get the kids and make sure that they're coming? And I'll go in, and the kids will be sitting on the couch, and on Netflix, there, there's a series of movies, uh, Tinkerbell, okay? And the kids are watching Tinkerbell, and have you ever seen Tinkerbell? It is incredible. It is... There are four of them. There's one for every season, for summer, fall, winter, and spring. And so one day I went in and I sat down on the couch, meaning to get the girls and, and get them out of the car. And I went, this is so good. This is, I, I've never seen a movie like this before. Well, a few minutes go by and, and my wife comes in and she said, what are you doing? I mean, she might as well have said what the Pharisees said next, verse 47. You mean he has deceived you also? And I was. I was deceived by Tinkerbell. And I would, I would invite you to be deceived by Tinkerbell as well. It's a good movie. All right. Please don't hear me saying Jesus and Tinkerbell are the same. All right. But they continue. Verse 48. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. This was them saying, listen, you follow us. You don't follow him. You follow us, and if you don't see us listening to them, you don't listen to them. Well, here comes Nicodemus, the representative of the Pharisees in the conversation with Jesus. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? In other words, guys... Shouldn't we be asking who he is instead of assuming who we think he is and what he's doing? And you know what? He was right. He was right because nowhere in their law that they knew so well, nowhere in their law were they allowed to be doing this, to be treating Jesus this way. And Nicodemus knew because he knew the law and they knew the law. But I think what we're seeing here is a shift starting to happen in Nicodemus. It's a shift that moved from, from questioning to seeking to understand Jesus. And yet, and yet, nothing has changed. Look at verse 52. They replied, you too? Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And suddenly, suddenly and they were wrong, prophets had come from Galilee but suddenly, these guys who the law had been such a big deal to, suddenly, it wasn't at the center of their attention. You want to know why? Because this was no longer a head thing. This was a heart thing. Now, I want to pull back from the story one more time. Because I want us to think through. Just think through the people in your life. Does a face come to mind where this dynamic plays out? that you can reason with them, you can, you can try to be logical with them, you can try to explain things, and you may very well be right. But the heart, the heart says no. No, they're stuck. And they're thinking about things a certain way. And Nicodemus is looking at the Pharisees, and he's going, I can't do anything about these guys. And where you would hope to see a resolution, look what you get, verse 53. Then each went to his own home. Then each went to his own home. That's how it feels sometimes, doesn't it, with the different people in our lives. 
And this is the second tension that I think Jesus' relationship with Nicodemus is surfacing. That number one, there's nothing you can do about you. But number two, there's nothing you can do about anyone else. You cannot shift someone's heart. And we forget it. We forget it very easily. Not too long ago, we were in the car and uh, it came time to turn left. Um, there was a turn coming up, so I turned the steering wheel left and the car actually turned right. And I went, what? And, and so another turn was coming up and I went to turn the steering wheel left and we went right. And I'm sitting here going, what is going on? It happened a third time. And suddenly I was reminded that I was in the grocery cart car and we were at the supermarket. And, and it was my family that was steering the cart. It was my family steering the cart. And that's a picture of the amount of power that you and I have over other people. That you can turn that wheel and turn that wheel and think you're steering everybody, but they can take it a totally different direction, can't they? There's nothing you can do about you, and there's nothing you can do about anyone else. Well, Nicodemus, as you walk through John chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, you know what you get? More time. More time passes, and he's watching Jesus. Jesus is doing these incredible things, and, he, and, and he, suddenly the stuff from the first conversation is starting to kind of spin in his mind. And yet the whole time, you know what the Pharisees are doing? They're questioning, and they're doubting, and they're starting to plot to get rid of Jesus. And all Nicodemus is getting is more time. No resolution, just more time. More time to walk in the tension and walk in the tension. Well, finally, their plans, as, as you know, play out. Because they have Jesus arrested. They put him through an illegal trial, even by their own laws, standards. He's whipped. He's beaten as he's sentenced to crucifixion. And then he's led out to a hill where he is nailed to a cross where he would die on a Friday afternoon. And then something remarkable happened. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're about to see Jesus and Nicodemus one more time. Look at John chapter 19. Verse 38 says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. When, when people would take a body off of a cross, it would get thrown into a mass grave, usually, and forgotten about. But Joseph looks around in the middle of all this, and he goes, wow, like all his followers scattered. But this is when Joseph decides to step forward. And this guy who'd been a, a, a secret disciple now is coming forward to a public official. And he says, can I have his body? I, I want to take care of the body. And look at verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Now, I don't know if it happened in this moment or if it happened maybe during the sentencing of Jesus to, to crucifixion or if it happened while Jesus was hanging on the cross or maybe right here. But I can't help thinking that Nicodemus suddenly had a flashback to that original conversation. And he was reminded of what Jesus said. Just as Moses lifted up 
the snake on the pole, so that all who would look at it would be saved. So the Son of Man, so Jesus, must be lifted up. That all who look to or believe in him would have eternal life. And suddenly, I think it flooded Nicodemus's entire being. And do you want to know why I think that? Because of what you read next. Look at the end of verse 39. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. Now you read this and you think, why the detail? Why the amounts of spices? Why, why give us the detail of the process? Well, because according to Jewish burial custom, this is how you buried kings. This is how you buried a king. With these spices, with these abundant amounts, with this process. And I think this was Nicodemus' statement that Jesus is king. And suddenly, suddenly after all the tension, we're now two to three years after that original conversation, after all the tension, Nicodemus had his light bulb moment and the tensions got resolved. Because you know what he discovered in that moment? It was simply this, that your doing does not make you a better being. Your doing does not establish your value as a human being. What he discovered was Jesus doing established your value as a human being. Jesus doing established our value as human beings. Now you pull back from this. You go, oh my goodness, that took two to three years. Two to three years to get that. But I think what's hitting me most about just reading about this relationship is the undercurrent of the message that goes underneath the entire relationship. Look, look back at John chapter 3. This is, this is the verse, right? These are the numbers this week. But this is the verse that even if you've not been in church most of your life, you've seen this verse. You've heard this verse. But many people don't realize that it came in the context of a conversation with a guy who thought his doing established his value as a being. Look at what Jesus says. In some Bibles, this is red letter. Some Bibles, this is black letter. Some think Jesus said it. Some think John, the writer, wrote this. But regardless, look at what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever looks to, not the snake on the post, but the one who became a curse on our behalf on the cross, whoever looks, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I can't help thinking that what Jesus recognized is the best way to introduce Nicodemus to that kind of love and that kind of a statement, the best way to introduce somebody to John 3.16, I think is John 3.17. Look at John 3.17. It continues. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
You want to know what the message all the way through Jesus and Nicodemus's relationship was? I don't condemn you. I do not condemn you. And then you get to John chapter 7. And what was the word that Nicodemus used? He said, does our law state that we should condemn him without finding out what he is doing? And I can't help thinking that came from a place of Nicodemus thinking, Jesus didn't condemn me. Should we condemn him? And while it was said in John chapter 3 and it was, it was referenced in John chapter 7, it was shown in John chapter 19. Do you want to know what the cross is a statement of? This is God looking at you and me and every single person who is going to, that he's going to bring in the doors here. And he says, I do not condemn you. You want to know how you implant that message into somebody? I, I think God showed it to us. He says, I'll walk with you in the tension over time. I'll walk with you in the tension over time. Because you know what happens over time? You see it in Nicodemus' story. When you walk in the tension over time, it starts to shift the attention. And it causes them to look at not the snake on the post, but the Son of Man on the cross. And their emphasis shifts off of my doing and onto his doing. I guess maybe the best way to say it is simply this for us as a church, as we think about who he's going to bring through the doors. Time in their tension, time in someone's tension can shift their attention. Time in someone's tension can shift their attention. You see it in the life of Nicodemus, and if I'm honest, I've seen it in my life. I, I heard that many, many, many times, but it was the people walking next to me over and over, walking in my tension, who shifted my attention. And so I want to talk to two groups in here, and then we'll be done. The first is a group of us here that we have maybe been here for a long time. Maybe you consider yourself a regular attender here. Maybe you've been through a membership class here. But I'd, I'd ask us to consider that face that came to mind earlier, or maybe it's somebody you don't know yet. Maybe it's a classmate who sits next to you. Maybe it's the coworker next to you. Maybe it's the neighbor. Maybe it's the teammate, the coach. Would you consider walking in someone's tension? in asking God to shift their attention? Would you consider that? I think as the church, we, we've got to take a long-term view when it comes to, to walking next to people. Because it's a long school year. It's a long fiscal year. It's just a long year year. And I think maybe the best perspective we can have, it comes from a man named James Stockdale. He was an admiral in the Navy, and he, uh, he was shot down. His plane was shot down in battle. And as he was headed toward this crash, he said, he, he said that he remembers thinking in his mind, if I survive this crash, if I survive this crash, I'm probably going to be in captivity for a long time. And he said it in his brain that I'm going to be captured for probably five to ten years based on what he knew of how these prison camps worked. And sure enough, Stockdale came out of it alive eight years later. But he said, you want to know who didn't make it through? It was the people who, once they were captured, they got this really short-term mentality in their brains. And they went, oh, we'll be out of here by Christmas. And when Christmas came and went, and they weren't released from captivity, 
many of them died because they had given up hope. So let that not be said of us as the church. As God brings people in the door, can we take a long-term perspective to walking through the tension with people? And the second group of people I want to address in here are those who maybe you've been, you've been coming for a little bit of time. Maybe this is your first time in a long time. Maybe this is your first time in church ever. Would you consider that the God of the universe He does not look at your doing to determine your value as a being. And all around you, he has placed people who walk with you in the tension. And maybe today's the day that you finally have this light bulb moment where, like Nicodemus, and and if suddenly you're going, oh my gosh, I get it, that's not a preaching thing. That's a Holy Spirit thing. That's God using his Holy Spirit to draw you to him, if that is you. I'd invite you to pray this prayer with me. And you can pray it however you want. If you want to stand up, if you want to sit down, if you want to pray it in the quiet of your heart, if you want to say it along with me. But would you consider today may just be the day that you shift your attention off of your doing and onto what Jesus did in the midst of your tension? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. I ask, I ask that you would consider the prayer of our hearts right now. Maybe for the first time somebody prays this prayer. I, Heavenly Father, I believe you are my Father. I believe Jesus is your Son that you sent to die for my sins. I believe that at the cross my sins were paid for. I believe that I, I am not condemned I'm not leaning on my activity. I'm not leaning on my doing. I'm not believing in, in my, my intentions. I'm not, I'm not leaning on any of it. I'm leaning on your promise that whosoever would believe and look to you would not perish but have eternal life. Please accept me into your kingdom. Accept me into your family right now. And Heavenly Father, for the rest of us, I pray, I pray that you would establish in our hearts a long-term perspective, a long-term mentality that says, I've been impacted, I've been impacted through my tension, and I've had my, my, my shift in focus because of it. And so now, Heavenly Father, I want to be somebody who walks next to someone else in their tension, and I pray that you would use that to shift their attention. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.